Well, we prayed and uh, we sang about love. So if you join me by opening your Bible to Exodus... chapter 20, and we're going to read the first six verses. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we cannot fathom the love that you have for your creation. And that, Lord, uh, you made us so intimately and wonderfully made that, Father, we would have an opportunity to not only learn of your love, but just how jealous of a love that it is for us. Lord, I pray that your word would enlighten us this morning. That, Lord, your spirit would go before us and open our minds and our hearts. That our eyes would see another attribute of how great thou art. Father, we do love you and we have sang that to you, an audience of one, this morning. So, Lord, give us wisdom from your word this morning, that we may demonstrate to our community and those amongst one another that same type of jealous love for one another that you have for us. Thank you, Almighty. In your Son's precious name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. make sure I got it turned on here. (laughs) All right. Good morning. Um, My name is Aaron Swenson, the other Aaron. And uh, this is my, just started my seventh year on the elder board here at IBC. Um, It's 
I want to say this little talk that I've prepared today is the culmination of probably the weirdest birthday gift I've ever received. Um, my birthday is the day after Christmas, and last December I got a text from Pastor Aaron. I'm like, oh, that's nice. He remembered my birthday and sent me a little note. The text was, what do you think about preaching a sermon? And oh, by the way, happy birthday. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, so you've all been forewarned if you get a birthday text from Aaron maybe a little bit more than you were expecting. So there you go. Um, many of you know who I am, at least recognize the name and face. Um, but we've been blessed to have a lot of new families, new people join our congregation over the last few years. And some of you are probably wondering who the heck is this guy. So before I get into my sermon, just wanted to share a little bit about me, uh, my story. Uh, I first started attending, attending IBC as a little four-year-old with my parents, Vernon and Swenson. And uh, I was blessed to grow up in a strong Christian family. Got saved as a young age and uh, did the whole church youth experience, everything from Sunday school to Wana, the youth group, did the summer youth camps and did a couple of mission trips to Mexico and all the adventures associated with that. Um, graduated from PA High here, class of 95, and then left PA for the next 12 years. Uh, attended Pacific Lutheran University for undergrad, and that's where I met my future wife, Erica. And then after PLU, I went up by five little ways to University of Washington for dental school, and uh, Erica and I got married after our first year, uh, my first year in dental school. I was on an Air Force scholarship for dental school, and so after dental school, I was in the U.S. Air Force for four years. Uh, the first two years were in Guam, which is a tiny little island way the heck out in the Pacific. Um, great times there. And then back in Dover, Delaware, uh, on the East Coast. And Dover was when our oldest son, Aiden, was born, and he's a senior this year. And then 2007, I moved back to Port Angeles, and I went to work with my dad at his dental practice, and our youngest son, Ethan, was born 2009. He's a freshman this year. Uh, had some, some wonderful experiences um, in our time away, but there's nothing like being home uh, here at, at PA and, and IBC. So many of my formative moments in my Christian walk have happened at or through this church, and for that I will be eternally grateful. So just want to start by saying thank you to you all for being a part uh, of that. All that being said, for all the Sundays I've sat in these pews with all of you, I don't think I ever thought I'd be standing up here uh, about to give a sermon. Uh, It's an honor, and I'm humbled to be given the opportunity, but probably a good time to stop and say a quick prayer here. So (laughs) if you wouldn't mind joining me. Dear Heavenly Father, We just thank you for this opportunity that we can come together as a body and worship you in in song and hearing from your word. I pray that the rest of the service would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to start with a quote, and some of you may, this may sound familiar to you. Pastor Aaron used it about five or six weeks ago. Uh, but it's a good quote, and it's never bad to hear a good quote twice. So The quote's by Jared Wilson. The God most people want, even in their claims of tolerance and open-mindedness, turns out to be very narrow-minded indeed. He is simply a projection of themselves. 
But when, when more data is added to the line of thinking, when the view can be expanded a bit, we find many people adjusting, finding ways to revise their views. The true God is always keeping us on our heels. Thinking about God is almost always like this. It's been said that in the beginning, God made man in his own image, and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. The kind of God we want to worship is the kind who's pretty much exactly like us, the kind of God who shares our thinking, our preferences, and our tastes. But when then we encounter the real God in the words of the Bible and the Christian teaching that comes from it, and our mind is expanded, we must either find new reasons to reject him or we must surrender our objections altogether. As people, I think we tend to like our version of God, the God we make up in our mind. So I appreciate this series that we've been going through to help us understand, or at least remember, who God really is, and not just the God we think he should be or that we want him to be. I think it's important uh, that we have a true understanding of God so we can live in a manner that's honoring to him. Uh, When we study God's attributes, like we're doing in this uh, series here. I think there's several theological ways to divide them up, but very basic ways. There's some that give you the warm fuzzies, and there's some that don't. Um, it's the warm fuzzies, of course, are, you know, we talk about God's love or his faithfulness uh, or his mercy. And then there's others um, that maybe don't, at least on first glance, don't give you that warm fuzzy. We talk about God's justice or his perfection and how so imperfect, imperfect we are. And I think today's topic probably falls in that latter category about jealousy. Scholars believe that jealousy started in the Garden of Eden. You may not know this. There's a very little known story about Adam and Eve. And as the story goes, Adam was out late a few nights in a row. And when he came home, Eve accused him of having another woman on the side. And Adam said, don't be silly. You're the only woman on this entire earth. And that seemed to pacify Eve for the moment. But then that night, after Adam had fallen asleep, she reached over and counted his ribs just to make sure there weren't any missing. (laughs) I had to get one joke in. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, I think it's not a stretch for all, if not most of us, that when we hear the word jealous or jealousy, there's definitely a negative connotation uh, to that. And so it may, might feel weird to associate God um, with the word jealousy. When we think of jealousy, images may come to mind of an insecure, abusive husband who distrusts his wife and won't even let her leave the house, leave the house without, her, without him. Excuse me. Or maybe you might think of two friends, and one friend becomes successful, and the other friend doesn't, and becomes jealous, and the friendship just dies uh, in that sense. Um, jealousy often invokes thoughts of selfishness, suspicion, and distrust, and sounds possessive and overbearing. It can definitely degrade or destroy friendships and marriages. Most people would definitely think of jealousy as a shortcoming, an imperfection, and a sin. So how can God, who's loving and long-suffering, possibly be jealous? Or consider this predicament. 1 John 4, 8 as we went through the last year, says God is love. But 1 Corinthians 13.4 says love is not jealous. So how can God be both love and jealous and not make these verses contradictory? 
things that make you go, hmm. So hopefully, by the end of this two hours, uh, we'll have answered that question. Uh, always a good place to start is to define a few terms. I get to use my little clicker. Uh, and these definitions are from the book Godly Jealousy uh, by Eric Tomes. All right, so zeal is the first term here. Zeal is defined as the ardent general desire to see a particular result come about. This emotion differs from jealousy in that it is a much less specific desire. Zeal is the most general of translations and means the eager, ardent desire for something. Jealousy is defined as the ardent desire to maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship, and that relationship part is key. Uh, maintain exclusive devotion within a relationship in the face of a challenge to that exclusive devotion. Our last term, a little bit longer definition, uh, envy, the ardent desire to gain possession of something not currently possessed. This emotion differs from jealousy in that it is never godly. It is not necessarily a relational emotion. One can be envious of an inanimate object. And the object desired is not in the possession of the one experiencing the, the emotion. While jealousy desires the protection of something possessed, envy is the resentful desire to possess something not currently possessed. Envy never carries a positive connotation. I think jealousy suffers from a bit of a public relations nightmare uh, these days in that a lot of people will use the word jealousy and envy pretty much interchangeably. But as we just kind of defined, they're similar, uh, but they're definitely not the same. So there are over 500 passages in the Bible that talk about God's jealousy or humans displaying some form of jealousy. And in the interest of time, we're just going to hit about half of these uh, there. But now just a quick, uh, quick sampling of verses here to give you a little flavor. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. Joel 2, 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Nahum 1, 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So the Bible needs, leaves no question, there's many other verses here, that God is a jealous God. Uh, if you would turn back to Exodus, or you probably already opened there from what Kevin read, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes kind of digging into that passage going forward here. So the first explicit mention of God being a jealous God is, as Kevin read, in Exodus chapter 20. And here we find God is giving the law, and starts with the Ten Commandments, to his people. Um, and from the very first commandment, God outlines the exclusive nature of this relationship that he expects between himself and his people. And we're just going to review the first six verses that were already read here. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Well, the first commandment outlines this exclusive relationship, just God and his people, husband and wife, so to speak. And the second commandment outlines the correct way of worship, or at least eliminates the wrong way of worship. Um, The second commandment outlaws the worship of idols to any other god, but it also says we're not supposed to be building idols even to their one true god. Uh, God makes it clear that not only are we supposed to not worship false gods, but we need to worship the one true God correctly. God is alive and his spirit, and so any human-made idol can never fully or correctly represent God and therefore is an affront to God. You could easily argue that the jealousy of God is the background and the motivation for all Ten Commandments. The commandments explicitly outline how we should relate to God, And the first four commandments are fairly obvious. It's talking directly God to man. But the last six also fall under this same category when they're talking about how we treat our fellow man. How we relate to each other reflects on our relationship with God. Jesus stated in the New Testament, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't do the first without doing the second. And then he reiterated again in Matthew 25, And he talks about, as you've done to the least of these, i.e. your fellow brother and sister, fellow man, you've done unto me. So if we go back to our Exodus passages there, after Moses gave the Ten Commandments, he goes back up Mount Sinai to receive the rest of the law. And it's not stated exactly how long he was up there, but about 11 chapters later, the people start getting restless, and uh, they talk Aaron uh, into building the, making the, the golden calf. And uh, this is the very thing God just got done telling them not to do. And the first chance they get, they fail and they commit spiritual adultery. They make their, break their marriage vows, so to speak, and they make an idol. And here we see God's jealousy in action when his anger arises against the Israelites. God cannot sit idly by when his people pursue Wrong worship. So long story short, the Levites kill 3,000 people that participated in this idolatry, and there's a plague that's sent over the whole population. Um, You may remember the punishment in Old Testament law for adultery was death, and so that's where this is coming from. But Moses appeals to God on the people's behalf, and he does not wipe them out. Then Exodus chapter 34 After things have kind of calmed back down, God reiterates again what he expects from this relationship. And this is verse 14 of chapter 34. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. It's almost as if he was saying, I thought I was pretty clear a couple of chapters back when I said, don't worship other idols because I'm a jealous God, but that didn't quite sink in to your thick skulls. Uh, we rag on the Israelites, but do remember that we'd probably be doing the same thing if we were back there. Um, So God says, all right, let me make this as clear as I can be. Do not worship other gods, because my name is Jealous. And for God to speak his name was a big deal, especially in biblical times, names were very significant. God's name is synonymous with his character and his attributes. It's the very essence of who he is. Most of the accounts in the Old Testament where we see God's jealousy in action, he's responding definitely in, in anger and wrath, but not always. And one of those examples where he responds otherwise is the book of Hosea. 
And if you'd start turning to Hosea 2, let me set the, the stage for us here. One of the subtitles for the book of Hosea is, is The Jealous Love of God. Uh, and here God's jealousy is demonstrated in his patient, loving pursuit of his people, even when they have again turned away and are worshiping other gods. And God uses the prophet Hosea's own life to give his people a kind of real-world picture of how they've acted and how God treats them in spite of that. God tells Hosea to take Gomer, who was a prostitute, and to redeem her and her reputation by marrying her, and he, so he does. And, but after a while, they've been married for a while, Gomer returns to her life as a prostitute. Um, but Hosea does not cast her away. He pursues her and brings her back as his wife, even though she had definitely defiled the marriage covenant with her adulterous ways. And so just as Gomer had left her husband, so the Israelites had left their spiritual husband uh, and to worship the false gods of Baal. It's God's jealous love that motivates him to pursue his bride and restore the covenant relationship. And even if God must use some harsh terms or harsh uh, forms uh, sometimes, his goal is always the restoration of this relationship. And he kind of spelled out that goal in Hosea 2, 14, 15, and verse 23. And here God is speaking to the nation of Israel. Says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond in the days of her youth as in the day she came up out of Egypt. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So we've seen some examples of God being jealous. And one might ask, well, what motivates God's jealousy or what invokes God's jealousy? And there's basically two general categories or motivations for God's jealousy. And the first one is for the faithfulness of his people. I think it's Pretty obvious from the Exodus uh, passage we just you know, went through. And when the people are unfaithful, that's when God's jealousy kind of moves to the forefront, if you will. Uh, and throughout Scripture, God shows again and again that he will not tolerate other gods uh, because he's jealous for the faithfulness of his people there. As Eric Tomes states in his, ver- in his book, this covenant demand is in line with the deep love God has for his people. And the language of jealousy is an expression of this love that is at the heart of the covenant. And for the Israelites to construct images would be to indicate that they have forgotten their first love. Divine jealousy and wrath are not the opposite of love, but grow out of true love and does not represent a change in God, but is, as it were, the reverse of the coin of love. It was the people who were prone to change and forgetfulness. And from outside the relationship of love, God indeed was awesome, like a consuming fire. The second motivation for God's jealousy is for his own glory or the honor of his name. And these two motivations are very closely intertwined. You definitely say that God is jealous for the faithfulness of his people because he is jealous for his own glory and the honor of his name. Many times in scripture, God either explicitly states or shows through his actions that he acts for his own glory. Just a couple examples here. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. 
Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my name's sake, for my name's sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And again in Ezekiel 39:25. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. In Daniel 4, you see the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, and here we find King Nebuchadnezzar basically thinking he's God, that he alone is responsible for the rise of his kingdom. And we very quickly see God say, nope, you're not. Uh, In Daniel 4, verses 31 through 32, it says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. And I think this is probably associated with the heavenly eye roll. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And our last example is from the New Testament, and again, we find another earthly king, ruler, thinking he's a lot higher up the ladder than he is. And this is King Herod here, Acts twelve, twenty-one to 23. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god, and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. As an aside, I hope that last half of the sentence happened in reverse order for Herod. As these last two passages illustrate, God acts decisively to preserve any threat to his glory. He is jealous for his own glory among all people, and he will tolerate no rivals. There are no rivals, but he won't even tolerate people that try to act like a rival. So up until now, we've seen some examples of God's jealousy. We've kind of talked about some motivation. Um, But as you well know, this attribute is one that we share with God. And so let me just highlight a few biblical characters here that their actions were motivated by godly jealousy. The first example is found in Numbers 25. And uh, we're back with the Israelites here. And even after their earlier lessons in Exodus, the Israelites still haven't quite grasped the, <laughs> the key here. They've screwed up again. Um, and here we find they've looked away from God and they're worshiping other gods. And verse 1 through 3 kind of sets the stage here. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Pure, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Now the Israelites weren't supposed to marry, intermarry with foreign tribes, and they definitely weren't supposed to worship foreign tribes, but... They did, and uh, as the verse said, the Lord's anger burned against them. God reacted in his anger based on his righteous jealousy because of their spiritual adultery. They had, again, pursued a different spiritual husband. As a result, God instructs Moses to declare a death sentence on any of the men that participated in this idolatry and morality. And in addition, God sent a deadly plague over the whole population. 
The amazing thing is, even after these two punishments have been started to enacted, we still find some of the Israelites are participating in worshiping other gods. And that leads us to our first character here, that uh, his actions were motivated by a godly jealousy. And that character is Phineas. Didn't know there was a Phineas in the Bible until I researched this. Uh, but Phineas sees one of these Israelites bring a foreign woman in and proceed to have sexual relations with her basically in front of everybody. And he says, nope, not going to happen. Grabs a spear, kills both the man and the woman with one thrust. And immediately after this happened, it's recorded that the plague that had killed 24,000 people already ends. And then God spoke to Moses, and that conversation is recorded in verses 10 through 13. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. I think the lesson here is that God responds favorably when we act with godly jealousy to preserve or protect that ex- this relationship between God uh, and his people. And we'll talk later about whether it's still okay for you and I to uh, use a spear to enforce this special relationship. So, something to look forward to. Our next character is Jesus himself. Obviously, he was God, but he was fully God and fully human. And the event here is the cleansing uh, of the temple. In Matthew twenty-one twelve through 13 Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you have making it a den of robbers. Now these merchants were providing a legitimate service. People came from far away, and so often currencies had to be exchanged, and not everybody had an animal for sacrifice, so they needed to buy uh, an animal, but the merchants, Jesus was angering, angered because of the profiteering that was going on. The merchants were more focused on the financial aspect uh, <clears throat> to the point of charging excessive amounts. They had taken the focus off of the worship of God in this sacred place, and it was just about business. And John's gospel adds some further explanation for why Jesus was so hot <laughs> under the collar there. In John two seventeen, it says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for my house will consume me. And this is referencing Psalm 69, 9. I believe you could easily substitute the word zeal and jealousy in this this context. Excuse me. Jesus was motivated by a godly, jealous pursuit of the correct worship of God, and he could not sit idly by uh, while this abuse was going on without confrontation and correction. So our last character in our little biblical travels today is the Apostle Paul, and this account is found in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 2-3. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And in this context, Paul is acting like the father of the bride, the bride being the church at Corinth. And the imaging, imagery here is the father of the bride being vigilant to protect the purity of the bride during her betrothal to the groom. 
Paul was jealous for keeping the Corinthian believers in a right relationship with God, and their failure to, to spurn the false teachers that had crept into the uh, church there was adding up to idolatry. And Paul knew that to follow another gospel uh, was to be unfaithful to the, ones that they, or to the one that they were betrothed to. I think the most direct application here is for pastors and church leaders. Um, they should have a de- jealous desire to preserve the purity of their congregation uh, in their relationship with God. And even if that means having some hard conversations, they should be doing everything in their power, ultimately God's power, to shepherd their flock rightly. So we've established that there is a f- godly form of jealousy, but at the beginning of the sermon there, I kind of gave some examples of some sinful or bad forms of jealousy, if you will. Um, so the next question is, what, what differentiates good and bad jealousy here? And I'll just use the marriage relationship to kind of illustrate the difference here. Positive side to jealousy is born out of a strong sense of relationship that is intolerant of rivals, and this is healthy if the rival is real, and it threatens a godly relationship. This is the type of jealousy a husband and wife would feel if somebody else is trying to get too close uh, to their spouse. A husband has a right to his wife's heart and vice versa that nobody else does. And so if a real threat arises and you get this strong emotional response, that's jealousy. That's a righteous jealousy. In fact, if you didn't feel that way, your spouse may wonder if you really even cared about him or loved him in the first place. So... Um, A healthy or positive jealousy has to do with the passionate pursuit of the preservation of the highest priority in each other's life. When this is done correctly, it's for the highest good of both spouses. As Dr. George Morrison said, jealousy is the shadow cast by love. That's meant in a good, protective way. Unhealthy jealousy is when one spouse is trying to control every aspect of uh, their spouse. Their focus is really just about themselves and what makes them feel happy or in control. They cease to be seeking after the good of their spouse. Your spouse can have friends and interests outside of you, and I think anybody that's married for any time realizes that's healthy. Um, <clears throat> so for you to seek to eliminate those things is to be operating from insecurity and an unhealthy jealousy. It actually would probably be more clearly defined as envy because you're really trying to control something that's not yours to control. And that's why, we were in reference back when I talked about 1 Corinthians 13.4, where some Bible translations say love is not jealous, others translate it love does not envy, which I think is a little bit clearer translation. Tim Keller described jealousy this way. He used the term angered love. And godly jealousy is angered love that stays love. If a husband is actively pursuing other women, flirting or full-on affair, the wife should get upset. Uh, An assault to the marriage uh, relationship has occurred, and anger is appropriate, but it must be contained to the boundaries of love. When we get angry and blow way past those boundaries, that's when we cease to be concerned for the good of the relationship. It may have started out as angered love, but now it's just straight sinful anger. Uh, in that situation, we're just out for our pound of flesh, and that's unhealthy jealousy. When God acts with his, in his jealousy for his glory or to maintain the faithfulness of a people, his people, he does often act in hard ways. He does withdraw his blessing for a time, 
Sometimes he needs to kind of smack us upside the head to get our attention. But just in case you ever think that God's just being mean or he's being a bully when he acts like this, there's an important fact to remember. We've been studying the attributes one by one, but it's important to remember that God is always all of his attributes all the time. So he never ceases to be love or to extend grace or offer goodness when he's being jealous. Uh, God is ultimately driven by the goal of returning us to the right relationship with him, where we are most satisfied and fulfilled. God only acts in anger to the point of waking us from our sinful fog. And if you remember from the Numbers 25 passage we just went through, once Phineas took his def- you know, definitive action, God immediately ended the plague on the Israelites. With God... He should be our highest affection. Now, there are many good things in this world, you know, work, sports, recreation, you name it, um, that are, are fulfilling and enjoying and to at least a certain extent. But the problem is when we try to elevate any one of those things to the top spot in our, in our life and make, we, we make them our idol. When this happens, we offend God, we break his heart, and that's when his Jealousy arises, and ultimately we're not fully fulfilled there. I believe we can take a couple of personal lessons from the jealousy of God. And the first one is within our own personal walk with the Lord. We should be jealous for our relationship with God. Not that we're concerned about God being unfaithful, but uh, I think we can all agree that we need to constantly be evaluating ourselves so that we are not... um, being unfaithful to God. We're always keeping him as our highest treasure. We can definitely be easily tempted to wonder uh, in that sense. The second lesson is in regards to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we uh, can definitely manifest a jealous love for their relationship with Christ. Uh, If we see a fellow believer faltering in their devotion to Christ, uh, we should be motivated by a godly jealousy, as Paul was, to come alongside them and Correct them and hopefully help them redirect that focus to God. Um, Now, a word of caution here, and I can't state this more firmly. This needs to be done correctly, because if it's not, it can cause a lot of harm. If you're going to confront somebody, you definitely need to examine yourself and make sure you've removed the log from your eye before you try to remove the splinter from your fellow brothers and sisters' eye. It's also good to remember that we are not the arbiters of final judgment in lieu of, of New Testament there. So, as I said, no spears or whips are to be utilized in this intervention. We can feel the same level of jealousy that motivated, or that led to the whip and spear there, uh, but we need to speak God's truth in love with the goal of restoration, not condemnation. All right, making good time. Halfway through, no. Uh, for my, my closing point here, I'd like to circle back to a point I made earlier, and we're going to take a little side trail, and I'll pull it back in at the end. But I mentioned that God's primary focus is to receive all glory and honor for himself. That's what motivates his jealousy and really everything that he does. So if you start thinking about this idea that God acts for his own glory, and you start thinking about it long, sooner or later you're going to be confronted by this fundamental, important question. And the question is, 
Is divine self-exaltation really good news? Or that's a fancy theological way of saying, is it good or even right that God is all about his own glory and honor? I don't know how many of you have stopped and really thought about that question. To be honest, I hadn't thought about it too much up until uh, a couple years ago. Um, it it kind of been in that folder in my brain. Maybe you guys have a folder like this that says, the Bible says so, but I haven't thought through the why part yet. Um, I believe God's word, and so I just accepted that the answer was yet, or was yes. Uh, but the times that it has crossed my mind, there was a bit of an oddness to it that was hard for me to reconcile. What I mean by that is, on one hand, it's quite easy for me to see people talk about God, whether reading in the Bible, uh, that God is truly awesome and the greatest being and deserves our praise. Um, but to read some of the passages in Scripture where God is speaking and he is very explicitly demanding our praise and that he gets the glory, that's where the pause sometimes gets. Uh, it seem kind of pretty egotistical of God to be as forward or demanding of glory for himself. And uh, I was reading John Piper's most recent book last year called Providence, and he posed this very question, is divine self-exaltation really good news? Now, he spent two chapters answering it. I think that's probably required to write a 700-plus page book like he did. Uh, I'm not going to (laughs) read all two chapters, but I would like to share a real condensed version of it, because I think he did a great job really... Uh, answering that question. And he sets up the question this way. He says, On the one hand, humans, human beings know all too well the experience of self-exaltation. We know it up close and personal. We have all done it. We, have all, we all have a built-in reflex to love praise, and we enjoy at some level being made much of. On the other hand, it is an almost equally universal trait that we don't like this about people, including ourselves at our best moments anyway. We have a love-hate relationship with the desire for our own glory. So if we don't like self-glorification in people, why is it okay that God is about his own self-glorification? Now maybe you would say, well, he's the greatest being in the whole world, so who else is he going to direct our praise to? And that's, you're not wrong. Or maybe it's one of those things where it's just one of the, it's, it's in for man, but it's not for God. And that's not wrong either. Um... But I like how Piper answered this, uh, and he did it in two parts. And the first part is, was a series of what-if statements that are kind of the other side of the same coin of God's self-glorification acts uh, and statements. And then the second part revolved around the aspect of God's desire for our praise uh, of his glory and what that really means. And Piper listed about five or six of these what-if statements. I'm just going to read two. You kind of get the flavor here. What if God's calling attention to his glory turned out to be less like a quack doctor who hangs out a sign that he's the best and more like a real doctor hanging out a sign because he is in fact the best and he alone can do the procedure that will save the community from the spreading disease? What if God's making known his superiority is less like an anxious college art student touting the greatness of his classes to shore up his reputation by attracting more students and more like the best artist in the world going to the poorest college and announcing that he is going to be giving an absolutely free course so that he can show the lowliest students the secrets of his superior skill. In other words, 
What if, in the end, we discovered that the beauty of God turns out to be the kind that comes to climax in being shared? And what if the attitude we thought was mere self-promotion was instead the pursuit of sharing the greatest pleasure possible for all who would have it? And Piper goes on to his part two here. According to Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, the ultimate goal of God in initiating the entire plan of salvation before creation was that he would be praised for the glory of his grace. C.S. Lewis, you can never go wrong with a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis, like so many others, stumbled over this reality in Scripture, and it was his own lingering over the nature of praise that provided the breakthrough for him. At first, he complained that the way the Scriptures commanded us to praise God was much like a vain woman who wants compliments. But instead of turning away in disgust, Lewis looked more deeply, as he did with so many things, into the reality of praise. Oh, that we all would penetrate through words to the reality behind them. Love that sentence. Here's what Lewis found. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Praises, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, player, players praising their favorite games, praise of weather, wines, dishes, arts, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. And here's the key, key paragraph here. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. And Piper goes on. Now, if Lewis is right, and I think he is, then God's pursuit of our praise of his glory is his pursuit of the consummation of our enjoyment of that glory. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. This means that God's self-exaltation is utterly different than all human self-exaltation. When humans exalt themselves, they call attention to something that can never satisfy the people they want to impress, themselves. But it is otherwise with God. In exalting himself, that is, in upholding and communicating his glory, God aims to give enjoyment to all who would have him as their supreme treasure. And since praise is the appointed consummation of such enjoyment, God is not indifferent to our praise. If he aims at our joy in him, he will aim at our praise, joy's consummation. He will not limit our joy by discouraging our praise, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is a form of love. For he is the only being whose worth and beauty can satisfy the human soul fully and forever. When God makes his phrase the goal of his providence, he is pursuing our full and lasting pleasure. That is love. Let me tie this back into our main subject. When we talk about God being a jealous God and he's jealous for his own glory... The cool part is, that's where our ultimate fulfillment is found. The most loving thing God can do is to direct us to where we are most alive. God's self-directed godly jealousy is unique to God and in no way detracts from his love. God is most loving when he jealously demands the praises and honor of his name in the hearts and lives of his people. 
God alone is able to love completely and seek his own glory at the same time. It would actually be selfish of God not to direct our praise toward him because nothing else is as fulfilling as God for the human soul. Thank you.